and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what it all means for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. Hi, everyone. It's Sefi. I sat down with Ambassador Dan Shapiro, former U.S. Ambassador to Israel under President Obama, on January 5th to talk about what to expect in the foreign policy of President-elect Joe Biden, a man he knows well. Of course, the following day, January 6th, saw an unprecedented insurrection take place at the U.S. Capitol. We at AJC condemn that attack on democracy in the strongest terms, and Manya and I and our Shabbat table guest will be talking more about that at the end of the show. Still, as January 20th rapidly approaches, it's important to understand what to expect from the incoming Biden administration. Plus, Ambassador Shapiro is always a great guest. I hope you enjoy the upcoming conversation, which is not at all out of date, even if there's been other news that looms larger right now. Ambassador Shapiro, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Seppi. Great to be with you. Now, I think one of the first places to start to figure out how soon-to-be President Biden will engage with Israel is to take a look at how Vice President Biden engaged with Israel during the eight years of the Obama administration. You had a front seat for that, and while I'm sure uh, there's plenty that you can't talk about, um, what can you tell us about Biden's voice on Israel within the administration? Sure. Well, this is an important conversation, which I'll just say up front, uh, the important caveat, I'm not speaking for the Biden transition. Uh, I have no role in the transition. I'm simply speaking for myself. But one of my capacities is a former uh, colleague. And I have to say his role, including on three trips to Israel during the eight years of the Obama administration, in which I accompanied him on each of them or was in Israel and received him on them, is consistent with everything about him in his whole career. Uh, he is somebody who has spoken at length and for decades about his very deep kind of emotional bond to Israel, his sense of the justice and legitimacy of Israel's creation, the strategic interest for the United States and moral interest of the United States to ensure Israel's survival, security, legitimacy, right to defend itself. Those were hallmarks of his Senate career for 36 years and also hallmarks of his eight years as vice president. So all of the advances we had, the developing of funding for the Iron Dome a missile defense system, including the emergency resupply during the 2014 war with Gaza, the expansion of our intelligence sharing with Israel and our joint training between the militaries, the other technology programs on tunnel detection and missile defense, the $38 billion memorandum of understanding, and all of the standing up against the BDS movement, against other attacks on Israel's legitimacy, other attacks on Israel's right to defend itself were things that he was a full player in and someone who really argued for them and was a fundamental believer in. I have no doubt that Joe Biden as president will continue to be the Joe Biden he has been for his entire life and certainly was in all those years as vice president. One thing that's remarkable, I think, is that Biden has a famous story that he'll tell, which we won't rehash you and I here, but people are welcome to Google Joe Biden, Golda Meir about when he first met Golda Meir and what she said and how that stuck with him. It is remarkable that someone who is kind of still in the politics game, really at the at the apex of the politics game in 2020, 
met Golda Meir and has known every prime minister since Golda Meir, which is really striking. Really personal friendships and personal relationships. And that includes uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, who was, you know, was a young diplomat in Washington in the 1980s when Joe Biden was a young senator. They became real friends and having spent time with them now, I can tell you that's a real friendship. It's involved their families. Is that that very Israeli style friendship where they can argue sometimes very intensely, but the friendship is not diminished through the argument. So I have no doubt that whoever is the Israeli prime minister opposite President Biden, that friendship will continue. It's interesting that sometimes we have these kind of legendary pairings, right? Clinton and Rabin and frankly, Netanyahu and Trump, they're just in sync. The U.S. president and the Israeli prime minister are just in sync in a way that leads to tremendous dividends between the U.S. and Israel relationship. On the other hand, we had a situation where, you know, when President Obama was first elected, Ehud Olmert was in office in Jerusalem. And then very shortly afterwards, Prime Minister Netanyahu took over. And there, perhaps, I think it's probably uncontroversial to say that there was some friction between those two leaders. We could be heading for a similar kind of bait and switch situation here with Israeli elections coming up in March. But I suppose we can't really conjecture about that now. So let's go beyond personalities and talk about policy. I think when we're talking about the Israel-relevant realm of foreign policy, we can divide it maybe into three buckets. There's kind of Israel as Israel, there's Iran, and there's the Palestinians. So going one by one, I'd love to hear from you your sense of kind of the Biden administration's thesis statement on each of those buckets. There is the bilateral, I don't want to skip over it, uh, the bilateral U.S.-Israeli partnership that is not actually dependent on anything else happening in the region. So there's lots of aspects of the U.S.-Israel partnership. There are people-to-people connections, academic, science, uh, you know, perhaps someday a visa waiver program that don't depend on Israel's relationships with any of those neighbors that we're now talking about. So I don't want to put that one to the side. But now let me go to your question. It might be true that the only Trump foreign policy initiative that Joe Biden had something positive to say about during the campaign was in fact the normalization agreements with the UAE and Bahrain. The other ones came a little bit later, but immediately when they were announced, and I mean immediately, like same day within hours, with no hemming and hawing, Joe Biden's campaign embraced the agreements. He said this was something consistent with longstanding efforts of bipartisan U.S. administrations to help Israel achieve the legitimacy and recognition it deserves from its neighbors, something that will strengthen the camp of American partners now able to deal with one another more openly and security realms and other realms in the region, and that these relationships held out the prospects of something much warmer than the peace agreements with Egypt and Jordan, a real interchange at the societal, economic, trade, tourism, technology dimensions as well, and that he planned to try to advance these agreements. And he even said, challenge other nations to keep pace. So that's a full-on embrace of what has been achieved and the hope that more can be achieved in that dimension. He did say two additional things about it that were a little bit different from what one heard from the Trump administration. One was that he welcomed the fact that the UAE agreement also seemed to sideline the prospect of a unilateral Israeli annexation in the West Bank, which was being talked about right up until that agreement was announced as a way of preserving the prospect of a two-state solution. And second, that these new normalized relations between Israel and Arab states might also be used, and could be and should be used, as a source of a renewed momentum on the Israeli-Palestinian track. So that's something else I think he will work to do, to try to expand the normalization agenda and bring in more countries, and to try to make it a positive generator of momentum between Israelis and Palestinians. And we'll come back to the Palestinians in a moment. First, I want to move to Iran. 
in many ways, the kind of silent catalyst behind this Arab-Israeli progress. The signature issue there, of course, is the question of the JCPOA, the the 2015 Iran nuclear deal. Uh, Jake Sullivan, Biden's incoming national security advisor, said this week that Biden wants to rejoin the deal, bring Iran back into compliance, and only then begin to discuss other issues. Uh, He named specifically uh, Iran's ballistic missile program, uh, to which we could also certainly add support for terror and adventurism around the region. What's the rationale behind simply re-entering the deal, which Iran is flagrantly violating, by the way, recognizing that the world is different than it was five and a half years ago, and it requires a different sort of deal? Well, there's no question that the JCPOA was never, even at the time it was negotiated, and certainly isn't seen today, I, I think, by Biden's team as the be-all and end-all or the end point. It's at best an agreement that bought time that created an opportunity and perhaps a platform for a future negotiation on a much longer term agreement that is much broader in its application, not just to nuclear technologies, but to other technologies like like ballistic missiles that could also cover Iran's regional behaviors for malign behaviors that would have a stricter enforcement and lengthier term of the agreement. That's, I think, always been the understanding of it. Now, there's no question that the Trump administration's maximum pressure sanctions have had a significant economic impact on Iran. That's obvious to everybody. The country is under pressure, and it's also had a kind of a unifying effect among other U.S. partners, Israel and Gulf Arab states in the region. But it's also undeniable that today, precisely because following the U.S. withdrawal from the JCPOA, Iran began to violate its own obligations under that agreement. This week, even beginning the enrichment of uranium to 20%, which is closer to weapons grade and certainly not allowed by the agreement, that Iran is much, much closer to a nuclear weapon today than it was when it was complying with the JCPOA and then when the United States was in the JCPOA. Again, not speaking with any authority on behalf of the transition, my sense is that they are saying, look, what we are dealing with right now is a dangerous situation, much like we were dealing with in 2011 and 2012 when Iran was so close to a nuclear breakout that the Israeli government very, very seriously debated whether to conduct a military strike on Iranian nuclear facilities. And we must back them away from that threshold. The JCPOA is one mechanism to buy that kind of time, but it necessarily is also just the beginning of a negotiation on something that would be much longer term, much stricter, much broader. And that really is the strategic objective that we need to keep an eye on. Now, there are clear differences, and they've been articulated during this period between Israel and the U.S., and maybe between the U.S. and others in the region, over the wisdom of going back into the JCPOA. That may happen between allies and partners. But my judgment is that's not the main event here. The main event is developing a strategy with the necessary leverage to actually drive the negotiation toward that longer term, broader agreement. And on that, I think there's a lot more convergence between US and Israeli and Gulf and European positions where it would be possible to develop a common strategy. I hope we don't get hung up exclusively on the question of, going back in or not going back into the JCPOA, because I don't think that's actually the main issue. It'll also be interesting to watch the extent to which the Israeli government and some of the Gulf governments now with relations coordinate their kind of uh, lobbying of the Biden administration. They probably will. There's a lot of evidence that they already do that. The Israeli ambassador, the UAE ambassador in Washington are fast friends and appear publicly, I guess, on Zoom now together, making very similar arguments and even finishing each other's sentences. But you know, one thing they haven't yet answered, at least that I've heard, is, okay, if the U.S. followed the prescription I think they're offering, which is continue the maximum pressure and hold out, and Iran inches closer and closer, and now it's within 
you know, two to three months of a nuclear breakout, you know, what should we do about that? I haven't heard anyone quite answer that question. And so one of the things a Biden administration, as it gets launched, has to deal with is the reality that Iran is that close to a nuclear weapon and something needs to be done about it quite quickly. Otherwise, we're in a very dangerous situation for precisely the things that those countries want to avoid, either Iran going nuclear or a nuclear arms race in which other countries, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and Turkey, feel they have to match it, or a military conflict is the only way to prevent a nuclear Iran. Last of those three buckets, let's turn to the Palestinians. You were one of the relatively few Democratic foreign policy figures who applauded the Trump administration decision to relocate the Israeli embassy to Jerusalem. But at the same time, you also floated the idea that the next Democratic president should consider upgrading diplomatic ties with the Palestinians. I think without question, some measure of re-engagement with the Palestinians is important. The Palestinian Authority broke off ties with the Trump administration a few years ago, and everyone expects that relationship to improve under the Biden administration. But what are some specific steps that you expect to see Biden take here? First, I would say that the framework that I anticipate from the Biden administration would be to say, look, it remains a U.S. goal and a U.S. interest to see this Israeli-Palestinian conflict come to an end. There's only one outcome that actually ends it, which is an agreed, negotiated two-state solution. All the other outcomes that one can imagine are not really an end of the conflict. They almost certainly create immense pressure on either Israel's Jewish or its democratic identity, putting great pressure on the common values basis of the relationship between the United States and Israel. They would prevent Palestinians from achieving their legitimate aspirations for independence. And so that needs to be the goal of the policy. That doesn't mean the conflict is ripe for a final status negotiation, as has been pursued under numerous administrations of both parties who had the same outcome as their goal. It is mostly about, in this phase, keeping that outcome alive, keeping it viable, keeping it achievable for the future at a time when attitudes and expectations are very diminished that it's even possible, at a time when we, at least at the moment, don't have leaders who seem to trust one another or seem to feel that they have a partner, and at a time when you know various uh, unilateral steps are pursued that obviously make this harder. Let me just cut in to tell our listeners that if they missed our episode with Nikki Mladenov from the UN about the work that he has done on precisely these issues to try to keep these prospects alive, if you missed that episode, I would commend it to your attention. He's been a tremendous force for good as the UN special envoy, respected by Israelis, Palestinians, and others in the region, and Americans, including in this administration. You know, so it doesn't mean you start from the point of view of how do you negotiate. You start from the point of view of what are the steps the U.S. can take, what are the steps Israelis and Palestinians can be encouraged to take and also to not take, and how can others in the region, Arab states, especially those now normalizing with Israel and others outside the region, to help contribute to keeping that two-state solution alive and viable. And it's a different model, of course. The Trump plan, in my judgment, anticipating what will be said about it, but uh, I don't think it really describes a true two-state solution. It describes an Israeli annexation of significant portions of the West Bank and isolated islands of a very limited Palestinian autonomy, not something that I think would really be the basis for a negotiated agreement. So it does mean, at least in more general terms, perhaps not with a plan like that, but describing an outcome that looks more similar to previous attempts to negotiate that solution. 
And then trying to do the things on the ground that can help keep that viable. That's building up the Palestinian economy and private sector and institutions of a future state. It means improving Israeli-Palestinian security cooperation and economic interchange as well. Here's where the Arab states have a real opportunity to play a productive role. It certainly means insisting or trying to get both parties to do those things or stop doing those things that are negative. So on the Palestinian side, that is in the incitement, the legitimization of violence, the payments to prisoners in Israeli jails who have conducted acts of terrorism. On the Israeli side, it's settlement expansion and talk of annexation that can prevent a viable Palestinian state from coming into being. And so that, I think, will be where the focus is. Now, one of the things, and this goes to your earlier question, that would help facilitate all of this would be a renewed U.S.-Palestinian diplomatic dialogue that's largely been on ice for the last three years. It followed the Palestinian refusal to talk to the U.S. after the move of the embassy to Jerusalem. As you said, I think the U.S. embassy to Israel belongs in Jerusalem, and in no way does that prevent or prejudice possibilities of a two-state solution, including one that might have two capitals in Jerusalem, but that's also to be negotiated. But it does mean that you need to be able, if you intend to be a mediator or a supporter of an outcome, a negotiated outcome to this conflict, you have to be able to talk to both sides. Closing a consulate that dealt with the Palestinians in Jerusalem, obviously it's made that harder. Closing the PLO office in Washington has made that harder. Cutting off all U.S. assistance to the Palestinians, including many streams of assistance that are not affected by the Taylor Force Act, the law that's intended to target correctly and that Biden supports, the salaries paid to Palestinian terrorists in prison, have all made that harder. And so I think there will be an attempt, and this was spoken about in the campaign uh, by a Biden administration, to restore a lot of those channels because they are an essential component of the U.S. being able to be a participant in the conversation with both sides, including that difficult conversation with the Palestinians about their responsibilities that is necessary for the U.S. to help keep a two-state solution alive and viable until dynamics change, conditions on the ground improve, leadership dynamics are different. And again, the Arab states maybe have decided to insert themselves in a constructive way in the conversation between Israelis and Palestinians. And so that you can try again for a final status negotiation. That may be not for another year, two years, or five years or longer, but there's a lot that can be done in the meantime to keep that alive. And that's what the focus would be on. Biden's win was interpreted by many as a rebuke of the kind of Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez wing of the Democratic Party. But those Democrats will hold an extremely strong position in Congress, especially in the House, though, frankly, in the Senate as well, if the Democrats do end up having a 50-50 uh, split. And just to spell out for our listeners, Nancy Pelosi, as Speaker of the House, can't afford to lose many Democrats from her votes. So the kind of squad left wing block becomes very strong. And similarly, if the Senate does indeed end up 50-50, then Bernie Sanders on his own or with one or two other folks along with him could also kind of, you know, use that leverage on foreign policy issues if they chose. Now, the executive branch in our country has an increasingly strong grip on the foreign policy portfolio. But do you expect that the left-wing voices in the Democratic caucus are going to have their say as well? Will it matter in policy terms? Everybody will have their say. That's our system and that's <laughs> as it should be. Fair enough. But, you know, I think in these very narrow majorities, if the Democrats take both seats in Georgia today, they'll have a bare 51 to 50 when Vice President Harris votes, majority in the Senate. And as you mentioned, they have a five or six seat majority in the House. These are very, very narrow. And so obviously in those situations, pretty much every single member has the kind of 
you know, uh, ability to affect whether or not something can pass. And so a very difficult attempt to achieve consensus has to be undertaken. Actually, people are talking about the Senate say, no, the person who will be the most influential in the Senate, if the Democrats do take the majority, is Joe Manchin, the most moderate or conservative or right-wing member of the Democratic caucus from West Virginia. So it kind of goes on both sides. You know, look, on these issues, I would say you're right. Obviously, the executive branch tends to dominate. And certainly nobody is going to tell Joe Biden, you know, this far into his political career at which he's spoken of his views and they were reflected in the Democratic platform. I was a member of the Democratic platform committee. And you can almost hear Joe Biden's voice in the paragraphs that address Israel and Palestinians and the region, really expressing all those same commitments to Israel's security and legitimacy and the U.S.-Israel partnership and a two-state solution. Nobody's going to tell him what he thinks. His administration will be able to carry out its policies. Obviously, there will be a need to hear from members of Congress from time to time. But I think we've seen, and this was true in the last Congress, every time when the House of Representatives addressed these issues, they sounded very Joe Biden-esque as well. And the different voices you're referencing were in a rather small minority, even within the Democratic caucus. And I don't think anything has dramatically changed in that regard. So I think, look, he will be open to hear lots of views. He believes that's important, but he knows what he thinks. I think he has the strong support of the real mainstream of the party when it comes to that. I'm not too concerned about those dynamics affecting it. I will just say in closing that Congress actually, and this was on a bipartisan basis, just handed the Biden administration a huge gift and a tool to use to try to advance some of these uh, regional objectives. And that is what's now called the Nita M. Lowy Middle East Peace Partnership Act. The creation of a fund and of the funding of a mechanism supported by a whole wide range of groups that have worked on people-to-people Israeli-Palestinian peacemaking, also supported by APAC and J Street, supported by, you know, Nita Lowy and Ted Deutsch and members who are much closer to J Street and the Democratic Party, but also supported by Lindsey Graham and Jeff Fortenberry and Republican members. And it's modeled on a similar fund that was created to support the Good Friday Accords in Northern Ireland to bring in people-to-people projects, private sector investment, multiple government funding to really help build the infrastructure on the ground to support eventual peacemaking at the leadership level. It's a tremendous opportunity, a tremendous gift to the Biden administration, and I expect they will work to make full use of it. And in that regard, I think they'll have the support of the entire Democratic caucus, but based on the legislative history here, much of the Republican Party as well. And I'll just say that AJC was, of course, proud to lobby for that as well. And and that, for my own part, I had the pleasure of bringing 100 high school students who were participants in AJC's Leaders for Tomorrow program, or LIFT, to the Capitol to lobby for that, an earlier version of that bill in 2019. Good for AJC for supporting it. My apologies for not referencing it. (laughs) Let me just say, Ambassador Shapiro, thank you so much for giving us this preview. It's a pleasure, as always, to have you on AJC's People of the Pod. It's always my pleasure, Sefi, anytime. Thanks very much for the opportunity. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining us at our Shabbat table this week is Laura Shaw Frank, the director of AJC's Contemporary Jewish Life Department. Laura, when you're talking with your family at your Shabbat table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? Sefi, I guess it won't be so surprising to hear that I'm thinking about transitions today. I couldn't believe my eyes yesterday when I saw that a mob had breached the Capitol building, and my rational self knew that the police were going to get control of the situation, but in that moment, I felt incredibly helpless and really scared for the future of our country. 
I wanted to do something, but of course there was nothing to do. So I prayed. I prayed for our government. I prayed for our law enforcement officers. I prayed for sanity and truth and a return to order. And I waited. So this Shabbat, I want to talk with my family about transitional moments. I want to explore with them what good people can do in a time when their society needs them. This Shabbat, the Jewish people also have a transition, although ours is a very peaceful one. We're beginning a new book of the Torah, the book of Shemot, Exodus. And my favorite character in the Exodus story is actually Miriam, Moses' sister. I'll explain. Moses is born after Pharaoh decrees that all baby boys born to the Jews had to be killed. Moses' mother, Yocheved, hides him for three months, but ultimately she's forced to put him in a basket in the Nile River. The Torah tells us that Miriam watched from afar at the riverbank to see what would happen. When Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses and takes him out of the water, Miriam appears at her side and offers to find a Hebrew wet nurse for the baby. And then she arranges for Yocheved, Moses' mother, to be Moses' wet nurse. Only once he was weaned was he brought back to the house of Pharaoh to be with his adoptive mother. The Talmud tells the story behind the story. Miriam prophesied before Moses' birth that her mother would bear a son who would be the savior of Israel. When Moses was born, her whole house filled up with light and her father kissed her on the head and said, my daughter, your prophecy has been fulfilled. But then when they had to cast Moses into the river, her father smacked her on her head and said, where is your prophecy now? So Miriam goes to watch from afar to see the fate of her prophecy. Here's where we see the greatness of Miriam. She never stops believing. Instead of hiding from her seemingly false prophecy and avoiding seeing the terrible fate of her baby brother, she goes down to the river to watch how God is gonna make the prophecy come true. And not only does she believe, she acts. Miriam understood that if Moses was to become the savior of the Jewish people, he would need some kind of connection to his people. So she arranges for Moses to stay in his birth home, where he'd be nourished by his own mother's milk and by the Jewish spirit of his family until he was weaned. So as I watched the terrible scenes in Washington yesterday, I was thinking about Miriam and what we can learn from her about transitions. Miriam was born into slavery. She had no idea what the future would bring. And despite that, she never stopped believing that God would save her people. But more important than her faith was her action. She didn't sit back and wait to be saved. She partnered with God by acting to bring about the future she wanted to see. I do believe that we will have a peaceful transition of power on January 20th. I have faith in God and I have faith in American democracy. But I also want to be like Miriam and help bring about the future I want to see beginning on January 21st. I want to talk to my children about working with other good faith Americans to rebuild the civic infrastructure of our society, about building bridges to others, about elevating those who speak with true love of our nation, our whole nation, whatever political party they may be from. I want to talk with my family about the fact that a peaceful transition of power takes place on one day in January, but the foundation we need to ensure that that transition continues to take place is built every single day. That is so helpful, Laura. Thank you. At our Shabbat table, we too will be discussing the images of mobs breaking into the Capitol building in the context of democracy and responsibility. My children watched by my side as the drama unfolded on Wednesday. At least my son did. We turned it off shortly after my daughter came home from school. He was having a hard enough time processing it. Okay, frankly, we both were struggling. One of the reasons I came to work at AJC is one of the reasons I became a journalist, to protect democracy. Since its founding in 1906, AJC has been committed to the American ideals of democracy, pluralism, civil, and human rights. Why? Why would a Jewish organization care about such things? Well, because Jews know what can happen when there's a power vacuum. When a country like the United States doesn't model global leadership and human rights and rule of law, 
it can create a fertile ground for leaders with evil intentions, a void that any megalomaniac could try to fill. Before Wednesday's violence, The Atlantic published a column by Elliot Cohen, dean of the John Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies and a former counselor for the State Department. In that column, he gave an interesting piece of advice. If you can force yourself to take a longer view, and if you love America as one should, wisely, and therefore not too well, you have plenty of reason for a prudent hope. At AJC, I've learned the value of taking a long view, and it does indeed inspire hope. This past year alone, we've seen relationships blossom that my colleagues worked very hard to realize, but few of us were certain we'd see in our lifetime. We watched a delegation from the Muslim World League walk through Auschwitz, the most senior Islamic leadership delegation to ever visit a Nazi death camp. We watched the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Sudan, and Morocco formally begin to cooperate with Israel. And we listened as Nick Cannon repeated anti-Semitic tropes he'd been raised to believe, then paused to study, foster friendships, and reconsider his positions. So yes, the long view does inspire hope, but it also inspires us to speak up when we see someone storming the Capitol in a Camp Auschwitz shirt or waving a Confederate flag. This is the responsibility of all of us who live in a democracy and who want to preserve it. I'm not sure those people who stormed the Capitol or those who encouraged them to do so wanted to preserve democracy. It's up to us. It's up to us to let go of our egos. It's up to us to accept some loss along the way. It's up to us to accept that Joe Biden has won the election, whether we like it or not. And now it's up to us to heal our nation, which has been so badly bruised. That's the responsibility of living in a democracy. It's not easy, and no one said it would be. And that's what we'll be talking about at our Shabbat table this week. Sefi, what will you be talking about? In the late 18th century, the founding generation of this country chose the phrase annuit coeptus as part of the motto to appear on the great seal of the United States. Yesterday, we all saw those words which are chiseled into the back of the Senate chamber and translate roughly as, by the grace of God, in the pictures of the rioters who stormed and briefly seized the upper house of our government. In the late 19th century, Ulysses S. Grant, who married into a big slaveholding family and briefly owned one slave, wrote, Whatever may have been my political opinions before, I have but one sentiment now. We have a government and laws and a flag, and they must all be sustained. There are but two parties now, traitors and patriots. I want hereafter to be ranked with the latter, end quote. The government and the laws and the flag that not yet General Grant wrote about in the early years of the Civil War were all attacked yesterday by traitors who fancied themselves patriots but flew the flag of one man instead of the stars and stripes of our nation. In the late 20th century, as he surveyed a chaotic world and spoke up as the most prominent proponent of freedom, President Ronald Reagan called America the shining city on a hill. Yesterday, the literal hill at the beating heart of our nation was overrun and desecrated by hordes of imbeciles who claim freedom as their watchword, but are as staunch enemies of democracy as those Reagan faced down. You all know me. You all know AJC. You know that we are fiercely nonpartisan. You know that we don't choose sides between Democrats and Republicans. But yesterday, the sides were 
democracy, the rule of law, and the constitution on the one hand, and sedition, chaos, and rioting on the other. Folks, when those are the choices, I'm partisan as hell. The only living Republican past president is on that side. President Bush called yesterday's attack, quote, a sickening and heartbreaking sight and an insurrection. The most recent Republican for the presidency before the current president who incited the riot is on our side, too. Senator Romney called yesterday, quote, an unprecedented attack against our democracy. Yesterday, Congress met to receive the results of the Electoral College. It's a formality that usually takes no more than an hour. But after a 14-hour process, interrupted by elected officials who tried to stage a coup within the rule of law, and by the seditionist mob that went outside the law to try to undermine our democracy, the result was exactly what we all knew it would be when we woke up yesterday morning. On January 20th, Joe Biden will be sworn in as president of the United States. I'll close with his words from amid the chaos. Quote, today is a reminder, a painful one, that democracy is fragile. To preserve it requires people of goodwill, leaders with the courage to stand up, who are devoted not to pursuit of power and personal interest at any cost, but to the common good, end quote. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our assistant producer is Atara Lakritz. And our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.